I was uh, looking at some army recruitment advertising. Don't worry, I'm not going to join the army. But um, recently, uh, the British army used this as their recruitment ads. And if you can't read it, it's actually pretty interesting. Um, snowflakes, your army needs you and your compassion. Me, 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 millennials, your army needs you and your self-belief. Class clowns, your army needs you and your spirit. Phone zombies, you're needed for your focus. Binge gamers, for your drive. Selfie addicts, for your confidence. What is it saying? The army accepts you for you. This is your army. You are needed just as you are. Let us help realize you. And as I looked at it, I suddenly realized this is why Tim Lim joined the army. Just kidding. He's not even here to defend himself. <laughs> Oh, it's really interesting is you look at army recruitment ads now compared with 100 years ago, and 100 years ago, these were army recruitment ads. And it's all about coming to fight for king and country, about joining something that's bigger than you. Nowadays, it's the opposite. It's all about you. And I'll give you some more examples. The Australian army, um, it's about doing what you love, no matter what that is whether it's seeing the world or learning or trying new things or leading. With the U.S. Army, it's about the calling. It's about fulfilling your destiny. It's interesting how, how, how much it's shifted in 100 years, right? Now, of course, they're trying to market it to this generation, your generation. I'm too old to join the Army, but it's very appealing to young people. Like, who doesn't want that? Calling, realize you. Now, Christians, of course, we also use words like calling, but if you're a follower of Jesus, it's going to be God-directed, right? We ask the question, what is God's call on my life? We ask the question, what is God's will for my life? What does it mean to maybe have godly ambitions? If you're a follower of Jesus, have you asked those questions about your life? Likely, yes. And I wonder how you would answer that. How would you answer the question, what is God's call? For you? What is God's will for you? What kind of ambitions are godly for you? Now, some of you will hear that and you'll go, yep, and you will aim high. God's calling, God's will for me, it's going to be big things. Like when I was a young leader and a young pastor, it's like changing the world and becoming a celebrity pastor or something like that. Others of you will hear that and you'll feel a bit paralyzed. Like, that's only for the super-Christians, right? That's not for me. It doesn't apply to me. God's call, isn't that just for missionaries and preachers? What's really interesting is that passage that we just read, please keep it open, um, 1 Thessalonians 4 actually uses those words. It talks about God's will, God's call, making something your ambition. But the huge difference is these words are used but applied to really ordinary, everyday Christian lives applied to everyday, ordinary Christians. Um, have a look again at verse 1. He says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And he'll go on, won't he? Um, verse 1, that word to live, we instructed you how to live, is literally the word walk. We instructed you how to walk, which means this is an everyday, very common, slow and steady 
very ordinary thing. What it's saying is God's call, God's will, godly ambition is actually applied in areas that we don't think matter that much. And it's particularly going to be applied in two areas. You can see on your outline, it's going to be applied to our private sexual lives, verses 3 to 8, and then our daily work. Again, not where you would expect the language of God's call and God's will to be applied, but yet this is exactly what lives shaped by the good news, the gospel, looks like. And this series, as we relaunch out of lockdown into the gospel, right, this is exactly where we need to be. We're meant to get personal. We're meant to touch the ordinary. We're meant to shake our, shape our daily walk, both privately and publicly. And I hope you're ready for a passage like this. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, there are things in this passage that will speak very loudly and perhaps be uncomfortable to us, even as it touches so many ordinary parts of our lives, both private and public. And I can't do that, Lord, but you can by your Holy Spirit. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will empower your word and my words so that every single person will hear you speak in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go. Let's think about the first area, the first topic of sex. Now, just a warning, if you are a parent and you are especially watching this on the stream, and you happen to have your kids around, and you don't think they're old enough to hear some of this stuff, you might want to catch up later on when you're without your kids. I know the kids here are obviously at Sunday school and kids' party, so it's fine, but just a warning to the parents at home if you're streaming. Let's have a look at verses 3 to 8. Let's read those verses again. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now, this was written uh, in the first century. The ancient Greek and Roman world had very, very loose standards when it came to sex, especially for men. It's a bit unequal. For men, especially, and also for upper-class women. Um, so sex before marriage, adultery, prostitution, homosexual sex, even sex with minors and children were seen as okay. Now, it's pretty much not that different to our world today, except for the children part, okay? I mean, modern secular Australia, really, as long as sex is between consenting adults and doesn't hurt anyone, it's all fair game, right? And if you believe or you say otherwise, well, it's not just prudish or irrelevant or you religious types, you old-fashioned types. No, we're, we're, we're beyond that. If you say or think otherwise, it's actually nowadays seen as harmful, isn't it? It's hate speech. It's discrimination. Now, I know why is that? Well, it's because now sex has been tied to our identity, hasn't it? Have you realized that? Sex is part of your identity. And so if you deny someone sex or their sexual orientation, is to deny their very identity. And therefore, it's discrimination and hate speech. Now, against that, the Bible has a very clear and a very different view of sex, doesn't it? It says there in verse 5, you're not to be like the pagans, those who do not know God. See, God has a will for His people that is so different. 
Sexual desire for God's people, followers of Jesus, is not something that controls us. Rather, we are supposed to be in control of our bodies, also in verse 5. Which means that there are standards and boundaries that are going to be very different to the world. And to break those is to invite God's judgment. It can't be clearer than these verses, can it? And so when it comes to sex, there are two things that this passage tells God's people to learn. Uh, Verse 4 talks about holiness and honor. See there? Holiness and honor. We're going to look at them in reverse. So we'll look at honor first. Now, the idea of honor is a little bit unfamiliar to us, but if you come from a traditional society, honor-shame society, like in the ancient world, it's, it's, it's pretty big, right? So what's honor? Honor is treating someone or something in a fitting way. Treating someone or something in a fitting way. So example, you honor the queen by paying her respect. You honor a contract by fulfilling the contract. You honor a work of art by hanging it and displaying it rather than keeping it you know, hidden in the, in the storeroom, yeah? The honor, therefore, has to do with what? Design. It has to do with intention. It has to do with the purpose of someone or something. So when it comes to sex, contrary to our culture, the Bible says there is a creator and therefore a designer. That is, sex has a design. God has an intention for sex. So what's the Bible's view of sex? Let me just summarize it there for you. No surprises. Sex, as God designed it, is meant to be one one man, one woman, exclusive, one flesh union within the covenant. Well, what's a covenant? A covenant is a relationship bound by promises within the covenant of marriage into which children are born and raised in secure and loving care. Right? That is is God's intention designed for sex. So what the passage, when it says sexual immorality or non-moral sex, is everything outside of that. You see, sex according to God's design is precious and beautiful and powerful. And therefore it can be dangerous and destructive if it's not honored, treated in a fitting way. See, sexual intimacy is designed to be the glue that enhances and grows the marital bonds between a husband and wife. Now, it's really important to note that sex isn't just a single act. It's not just intercourse. That's it, okay? Um, Sexual intimacy is really a continuum, if you think about it, right? It's a continuum that starts from attraction and Strong romantic feelings, then moves to intimacy, to foreplay, to intercourse, to climax, to aftermath. Like, it's really hard to divide those things, especially if, if you're not a man, <laughs> okay? Um, I think our, our, our sisters understand that more. They're wired like that more. It really does start from attraction all the way on that continuum because all of that is intended to work together to enhance and grow a marriage. That's how God designed it. The whole thing is supposed to express that one flesh union, which is really what marriage is about between husband and wife. Which means if you take sex out of marriage, you end up playing with emotions and attachments and also body and brain chemistry, by the way, that is designed to bond you to someone with whom you're not bonded to because you're not married to them. You take it out of marriage, and that's what happens. Uh, You see it in a passage like, whoops, 
not Toy Story, you see it in a passage like 1 Corinthians 6. Um, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. It's a bit like this. Um, You take two pieces of paper and you glue it together, which is really the sexual act, and then you try to pull them apart. I did this earlier at home. And what's going to happen? It's not that easy to pull apart, for one. But as you pull it apart, it's actually glued a bit too strongly together. You'll find that it's going to leave marks, one piece of paper on the other, even if I could pull two distinct pages apart. All right? That's what sex does. Like, those of you who may have been sexually intimate with someone before marriage and then have broken up with that person. You know what that feels like, right? You, you carry them with you as much as you don't want to. You do. Because if you give yourself sexually to someone, you, you stay with them and, and they with you. See, there is no such thing as no strings attached casual sex, is there? Not according to God's design and not, I believe, in our experience either. See, sex before marriage, I'm speaking to you, those of you who are not married yet, you may have a boyfriend or girlfriend, you may even be engaged. Sex before marriage can also fool a couple into thinking they're ready or right with each other for a lifetime together when they're not, okay? Because hormones and chemistry, as God has designed sex, they're, they're that strong. But hormones and chemistry don't make good marriages and don't make good decisions, Commitment and promise and sacrifice do, and that's why the covenant of marriage should be there before sex. Now, of course, I don't even have time to talk about pornography and how harmful that can be, but the principle is the same, right? It's about honoring marriage. It's about honoring your bodies. It's about honoring your creator by honoring sex within marriage and only within marriage. Same principles apply when it comes to fantasy and pornography. And no, did you note this in this passage? Dishonoring sex also dishonors others. Did you notice that? Verse 6, it talks about wronging and taking advantage of a brother or sister. Now, why does my private sexual life affect someone else? Not just the person you've had sex with, but someone else. Well, what's it saying? Well, here it is. Because sex outside of marriage is actually selfishly taking something from someone that does not belong to me. You got that? Like, here it is. I'm married to Karen. The body of my wife and only my wife is for me and mine for her. Not the body of the people on Pornhub. Not, my, not your boyfriend or girlfriend if you're not married. Not anyone else to whom you're not married. Their bodies are for their spouse and their spouse alone. It's not for me to take, not for me to fantasize about, not for me to lust over, it's not for me to use. You see, when I engage in sex outside of marriage, whether actual or fantasy, I'm dishonoring someone else. It's unloving. I want to just a word to those who are dating until you are married. Even if you're engaged, there is always a chance that you will break up until the covenant has been bound by promises in front of witnesses 
in the presence of God and others, there is always the chance that you will break up. So don't take something that isn't yours because it could one day belong to someone else to whom they will marry. That's dishonoring, isn't it? So that's honor. Let's look at holiness. Look at verse 3 again. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Sanctified? Holified. All right, if you like. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. And you skip down to verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Now, holiness is not just about purity. Holiness is about being set apart. You've heard that before? Being set apart, being distinct, being different, being separate. It reminds us that salvation isn't just what we're saved from, it's also what we're saved for. You got that? Salvation isn't what you're saved from only, but also what you're saved for. You're saved from sin, you're saved for God to belong to Him. Now let's introduce Jessie the cowgirl. You remember Jessie from Toy Story 2? She's saved from the rubbish tip, but she's saved to belong to Andy. That's the basis for holiness, all right? So you see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, it has to do with who you belong to. And that's why holiness is linked to calling. Verse 7, God calls us to a holy life to avoid sexual immorality. Holiness is linked to God's will. It's how you please God. But holiness also means being different, set apart, different, distinct. Different in the way we behave, how we view our bodies, how we control our passions, but also it's different in the way that we think about sex. Our mindset has got to be holy. Our thinking is going to be different. And as I said before, being different in our view of sex in this day and age will be costly. Like it really is already being costly. Not just, you just won't be, it's not just that you'll be called irrelevant or you'll be laughed about. You'll be labeled as hate speech. Right? It'll be labeled as hate speech. It'll be legislated against. And I wonder if Christians today, are you willing to pay the price for something like that? Because it is so costly to be holy in your thinking about sex. Well, I want to say it is costly, but it is worth it. Not just for your own sake, but for the sake of society. See, sex in God's design is the best way to secure families, to raise children, and to protect women and children. I mean, we are already paying the price, aren't we, as a culture for walking away from God's design. But it's only just begun. It's only been less than 60 years since the sexual revolution. Right? The consequences we will live with for generations to come. But you see, the consequences are even greater in eternity, right? Did you notice verse 6? The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. That's pretty serious. Let me show you a quote of an article I read this week from uh, Kevin DeYoung, a, a famous author. He says, Sexual sin is never considered a matter of indifference, an agreed-to-disagree issue like food laws or holy days. To the contrary, sexual immorality is precisely the sort of sin that characterizes those 
who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There are at least eight vice lists in the New Testament. He lists them for you. And sexual immorality is included in every single one of them, usually multiple times and often at the head of the list. You would be hard-pressed to find a sin more frequently, more uniformly, and more seriously condemned in the New Testament. And of course, at this point, there are those, all of us who failed, many of us who struggle, and some of you who are right now feeling very condemned and hopeless and guilt-ridden and fearful. I think it's not a stretch to say all of us have failed in some way sexually, haven't we? Now, if you're feeling that conviction, I want to remind you of the gospel. This is not the end. Judgment, guilt, shame. No. Remember the gospel. Remember the good news of Jesus. Let me just say two things about holiness. The first thing is, we don't make us holy. Jesus makes us holy. And how Jesus makes us holy isn't by us first becoming better people acting more holy. No, how it works is by substitution. Jesus, the perfect holy one, gave up his life to take on our sin and to give us his holiness. It's substitution. It's swapping. He died for our sin. He gives us his perfection. That's how we become holy. It's a gift. Jesus makes us holy. That's the good news. See, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, or if you're right now thinking, I'm hopeless, how could God ever love me? Even as a follower of Jesus, I failed so many times. Remember, Jesus gives you His holiness by faith. Who did Jesus call in His ministry? He spent so much time with prostitutes and sinners and those who failed sexually. So remember that. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, remember that. Jesus calls you too. So that's the first thing. You don't make yourself holy, Jesus. The second thing is, we don't keep ourselves holy. The Holy Spirit does. See, verse 8 says, right at the end, God gives you His Holy Spirit. And in the original, holy is actually, if you imagine, highlighted or in bold. The Spirit, the holy. So if you've messed up, start by confessing and repenting. Yeah, remember a couple of weeks ago, repenting, genuine gospel repentance is a turning from and a turning to, right? Not just feeling sorry, but taking action, right? So confess it to God, confess it to anyone you've wronged, repent of it, turn away from sin, turn to Jesus for forgiveness, and then of course turn to the Holy Spirit for power to change. The Holy Spirit keeps us holy. So cultivate a daily intimate walk with the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to walk with you through temptation, through failure, through confession and repentance to make you more holy. And if you mess up again, and some of you are like, yeah, but I keep messing up. Well, if you mess up again, don't be afraid to rinse and repeat. Like God never runs out of patience if you are one of His. All right? That's the good news. All right. 
That's sex. Let's talk about work. Gospel holiness is about sex, but it's also about work. Still very ordinary, but we're now moving from the private sphere to the public sphere. Uh, Look at verse 9. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so you will not be dependent on anyone. All right, you see it there? Make it your ambition to what? Lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands. I mean, this is pretty different, right, to not just the army recruitment ads, but any recruitment ads. Now, why is our ambition to be these things, these ordinary things? Well, verse 9, it's because... Well, the heading to this paragraph, what's it all about? It's actually all about love, right? You're making your ambition these things because guess what? Work isn't about you. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's about serving others. It's about love. Which means work is not just paid work or employed work, is it? Work in the Bible means unpaid work as well. Volunteer work, parenting work, church ministry work. Uh, Last week, if you were with us, I talked about how there's been a generational shift in the job market. There's also been a generational shift in in, in thinking about work, right? Like the question of the answer to the questions of why work, what makes for a good job, what counts as success, all of that's changed as well. I mean, my parents and my grandparents' generation, you know, a lot of it is just about putting food on the table, supporting your families. And that's why they wouldn't really move jobs. You just did it because you had to do it. My generation was really about money and career advancement and prestige, and that may still be the case now, but more and more so your generation, the millennials and the Zetas, it's actually more and more about personal fulfillment, isn't it? It's like their army recruitment ads. It's about fulfilling your calling, making a difference, realizing your hopes and dreams. What's the Bible's view of work? It's about love. That's what work is about. It it totally reassesses the value of work. None of these generations kind of ultimately got it right, except maybe the oldest generation. Because some lowest paid jobs, jobs that have the lowest job satisfaction, guess what? A lot of them rank much higher in God's economy. You got that? In fact, for a lot of you who are really involved in church, your unpaid work, your volunteer church ministry work, helping with church lunch, teaching kids church, leading CGs, doing the tech at the back. That work in the eyes of God matters way more than if you were a partner at a prestigious law firm. Do you get that? Because it comes down to love. Trying to chase your sense of self-worth or personal fulfillment in your job, the Bible will actually say is idolatry. See, idols are good things that end up becoming God things. So they're good things, right? If you have it, great. But if you don't have those things, don't sweat it because you don't work for yourself. You see, work shaped by the gospel is kind of (laughs) unsexy. I mean, look again at verses 11 and 12. Why work? Work so you can support yourself and your family, not be a burden to others. Other parts of the Bible talk about work so you can be generous, make a contribution to society, not bring shame in the name of Jesus. That's it. That's why work. It says nothing about self-fulfillment. It says nothing about career. 
It's just not there in the Bible. So here it is. If you hate your job, by all means, try and get a better one. But work isn't meant to satisfy you anyway. Like Genesis 3, work has actually been cursed because of sin. It's meant to be hard. So you hate your job, but you can't change. Or maybe you can't find a job that channels all of your passions and your gifts. You know what the Bible say? God would say, hey, it's okay. Just keep working for God for the sake of others. It's okay. Like I want you to know, especially... If you're of a younger generation and all you're fed is, you've got to find something that realizes your passion. That's all about you and your... Like, I hope you see that what God is saying here about work is actually enormously freeing. Right? A lot of grads find themselves paralyzed because they're expected to find jobs that is going to realize every single part of them that feels fulfilling and and it's a tremendous amount of pressure in this job market, isn't it? Well, God wants you to be freed of that. Because you don't have to find your identity in work. So if you're anxious about your job, career prospects, you're a graduate, or those of you just unhappy with your career or job life choices, um, or those of you who feel less because your work isn't highly regarded, isn't even paid at all, if you've decided to be a stay-at-home mom or dad, like God wants you to be free from all of that. Here's the good news. Because godly ambition when it comes to work is really so different to the world's ambitions. So be freed from that. I'll get the band up. We'll get ready to sing. Let me conclude. Do you want to know what God calls you to do in life? Do you want to know that? Do you want to live a life that pleases God? Do you want to do God's will? I'm sure if you're a follower of Jesus, the answer is yes, 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 and yes. Well, you know what this passage's answer is? If you want to do all that, do God's will, fulfill your calling, do what pleases Him, be holy. Be holy. That's it. Be holy in your private lives when it comes to sex. Be holy in your public lives when it comes to work. Do everything for the glory of God. Now, it doesn't sound very radical, right? Like, it doesn't sound like, again, my sex life in order, my work life in order, that how's that going to change the world? It actually can. I'll tell you what, what the world doesn't need is more mega churches and celebrity Christians hyping up Jesus, promising big things, and then failing spectacularly in their private lives, right? Like, that's happened way too much lately. What the world needs is to see every single follower of Jesus live out gospel holiness in the very ordinary, in purity, in integrity, in love and practical care, in hard, ordinary work. That would change the world. And Sweck, that should be our ambition, shouldn't it? As we relaunch into the new year. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you might help us to be holy. That's your longing, that's your will, that's what pleases you. I pray for those who find it condemning and convicting today. May they find and run to the comfort of the gospel. Pray that those who need to be rebuked to make changes, may they be empowered by you to change. I pray that those who feel disgruntled, disaffected, 
uninspired by their work, might find another reason to work for your glory as a result of today. So that we as a church, so that we as your people, might honor Jesus in the very nitty-gritty areas of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.